Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And with us tonight, as always, is a man who would never fake evidence of the supernatural, Joseph Wren. Joe, we are at part three of four with this series. How are you holding up? I didn't know I had what it took to digest all of the horrifying concepts that we are covering on the Fright Lab every single week, but especially during this series, Hungry, Cold, and Hunted. That's how I feel tonight. How do you feel, all of you gruesome people? And welcome to the podcast. Indeed. Uh, you know, we're pretty excited for this episode, uh, not just because we're making progress along, but we're uh, we're getting ready to cross over that big 2-0, that big 20-episode barrier. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a warm feeling for us. But we don't specialize in warm feelings in the Fright Lab. Hungry, Cold, and Hunted is not just a title, it's an ethos. So in the last two episodes of the show, we've been talking about what people call found footage horror, but what I've taken to calling horror cinema verite. If you are perplexed by this, I'm going to guess that you're just a new listener. And if so, welcome. Thank you for listening. But you will want to go back to the beginning of this series to understand what I mean. We'll wait. So now that everyone is caught up, I want to talk about a development in the horror cinema verite formula that I find genuinely amusing. And in a way, I think it was also kind of inevitable for a number of reasons. Tonight, we are giving the Fright Lab treatment to horror cinema verite's most ridiculous yet deeply enjoyable mutations, the ghost hunting docu-horror. Where do you even begin describing this phenomenon? Admittedly, this concept can quickly turn into something of a rabbit hole of its own serious research, as well as a lot of unabashed nonsense. See, if there is one thing that unites all of humanity, it's storytelling. And what's the type of story we all seem to love telling? Ghost stories, of course. So follow Joe and I into one of the best, worst things we've ever discovered. Joe, do you believe in ghosts? I think the general concept referred to as a ghost, meaning a spirit that is passed on from this life to the next, but still chooses to occupy this space and influence the world around it. I don't. You don't. You're you're a you're a nuts and bolts science guy then. I do think there are things that cannot be explained that are fun to talk about fun to make movies about and fun to make TV shows about. Not always fun to make more TV shows about, <laughs> but there are things that happen that really it's hard to find a reason for it. Perception and feeling have a big piece in the it's a ghost phenomenon. And that's what I'm going to call it because I think, for the most part, how many, how many, let, let, show of hands, right? Show of hands. <laughs> how many of us have a friend who has a ghost living in their house? Raise your hands. Just about everybody, right? How many of you have ever seen it? That's all I have to say. You know, I, I am kind of in a, a position of ambivalence about ghosts. I don't, um, I don't know that they exist, but I also can't definitively say they don't. 
I don't know that I've ever had an experience that I would definitively say like, oh, I was in a haunted house or whatever. It's ultimately that I think the world is a lot more interesting and a lot funnier if ghosts exist, but I, I can't nuts and bolts scientific prove it. And I don't think that a purely mechanistic scientific viewpoint is necessarily the best for living life. But, you know, I don't want to bog down too much with that. And whether or not you believe in ghosts, our ancestors certainly seem to believe. We have inherited a deep, old tradition of telling ghost stories culture-wide. I imagine that the first real horror media began around a fire one night as a bunch of hunter-gatherers wanted to talk about the scary things just outside of the reach of the fire's light. These Stone Age great contours... That came out funky. <laughs> These Stone Age raconteurs had plenty of time to collect stories and hone their craft of delighting and terrifying an audience. Think of them as proto-Fright Lab types, except that they owned more spears than we do. Well, okay, that's fun conjecture. But what do we actually know about our belief in ghosts and the stories we tell about them? This is something of a deep subject, actually. I don't want to spend too much time beating a dead and possibly undead horse here, but that does lead to an interesting question. How many people actually believe in the existence of ghosts? In order to not spend time chasing down what might be a, like the most irrelevant statistic of all time, I decided to find out how many Americans believe in ghosts according to some surveys. From a 2019 poll conducted by YouGov, quote, more than one in five or 22% say demons, quote, definitely exist, unquote, while slightly more, 24%, believe that they probably exist, quote-unquote. The numbers are similar when Americans are asked about ghosts. 20% say they, quote-unquote, definitely exist, and 25% say that they, quote-unquote, probably exist. And just for, like, a fun aside, the same article goes on to tell us, quote, Far less common is the belief that vampires live amongst us. Only 13% of Americans say that vampires definitively or probably exist. And a slightly older study from Pew Research in 2015 tells us the following. Uh, Joe, would you read this for us? Nearly one in five U.S. adults, that's 18%, say they've seen or been in the presence of a ghost according to a 2009 Pew Research Center survey. An even greater share, 29%, say they have felt in touch with someone who has recently died. I'm going to include links to those articles and some other articles about belief in ghosts elsewhere in the show notes, and I encourage you all to go give them a read. And when most of us think of a good ghost story, we tend to think of like Edgar Allan Poe and crumbling Victorian mansions. But the belief in and fear of the spirits of the dead is as ancient as humanity itself. For instance, a Babylonian tablet estimated to be about 3,500 years old was recently discovered. It appears to be a tablet relating to the exorcism of ghosts. It's currently in the British Museum, and there are plenty of images of it online if you'd like to see it for yourself. Of course, I'm going to provide links for you to go do that. According to an article in Smithsonian Mag, quote, All major ancient civilizations held beliefs involving the survival of souls after bodily death, wrote Joshua J. Marks for World History Encyclopedia in 2014. In many cases, these souls belonged 
to a realm of the dead, but might return to the living world due to improper funeral rites or unfinished business. Ghost stories with similar themes can be found in ancient China, Mesoamerica, Egypt, India, Greece, Ireland, Scotland, and Rome. In Mesopotamia, souls could return as ghosts that manifest themselves as sickness amongst the living. Doctors called on those suffering from these kinds of illnesses to confess any sins that may have summoned the dead before treating them with spells to placate ghosts. And that's all well and good. But what does that tell us about ghost hunting shows and the films that comment on them? I strongly imagine that a good portion of the appeal of ghost hunting quote-unquote documentary TV shows has to do with people wanting a good, bite-sized scare. Something easy, not too challenging, and easily vanquished. Films like The Exorcist or The Omen might not be so easily shaken, especially if you're of a religious persuasion. But a Zach Baggins ghost hunting program? You can shake that off, laugh at how silly they all are, and call it a night. And that's been the case for a long time. And using Baggins as the example, his show Ghost Adventures popped into the air about 2004, right? And he has since gone on to make movies and open a museum about, well, haunting stuff ever since. A quick search of the Travel Channel's lineup uh, shows more than 10 programs relating to ghosts, hauntings, and cryptids. And I think I speak for the whole audience when I say that any quick stroll through a streaming services library is quick to reveal plenty more shows like this ripe for your consumption. Tubi is a great and simultaneously awful example of this. Just uh, go look at their horror programming lineup and you'll see exactly what I mean. So just so it's said out loud, I don't want anyone to assume that I'm trying to belittle or talk down to them. Uh, I'm actually an avid fan of guys like Shane Madej and Ryan Bergara over at Watcher's Ghost Files. I see the appeal of this type of programming. As always, like what you like. There is no room for shaming in the Fright Lab. While I was thinking about this episode, I stumbled onto an undergraduate honors thesis by Abigail L. Carlin entitled A Haunted Genre, A Study of Ghost Hunting Reality Television from 2018. It's a pretty fascinating read, and it's linked in the show notes. I found a point made in the thesis to beautifully sum up why ghost hunting shows are actually popular. Quote, The cathartic properties of ghost hunting allows for a unique viewing experience, which negates the presence of a meta-narrative, a form of media made to draw universal conclusions about reality. Because consumers are able to satisfy individual feelings of existential dread by indulging in ghost hunting reality television, viewers can be transported into a space where good triumphs over evil, agents of religion are unquestionably real, and or life does not end with death, making ghost hunting reality television a unique and exciting product of the 21st century. End quote. Petty stuff, to be sure. But I have a hard time disagreeing with her point there. And one doesn't need to venture too far into academia or really any cursory research to see comparisons between modern quote-unquote ghost hunters and the spiritualism of the Victorian era as well as its impact in America. One of these days, I would love to spend more time on that subject, but alas, there has already been a pretty amazing podcast made about that subject. If you want to hear that, check out Jamie Loftus's Ghost Church. Uh, it's a podcast, and it'll be shared in the show notes. But let's get on to the fun stuff. Let's talk horror media. 
In a previous episode, I brought up the BBC TV broadcast of Ghostwatch. This program should be better known and entirely more legendary in horror circles. It's a first of the ur-text for the mockumentary method. Why? Well, we can say definitively that Grave Encounters, fun as it is, did not leave a nation of Halloween celebrants terrified. So let's try to break this down, shall we? It's October 31st, 1992. The BBC is broadcasting an entirely fictitious program reporting to be live from a haunted house in England. The plot of this show? Well, a single mom and her two daughters are experiencing increasingly distressing encounters with a poltergeist in their modest home. The events of the haunting are modeled loosely on a paranormal case commonly called the Enfield Poltergeist. Uh, By the way, the Enfield case is a serious, serious rabbit hole. I genuinely couldn't pick a single point for you all to jump off, so check into that on your own peril. There's a ton of info on the case, and it can really quickly become a time sink. Now, to understanding the lasting hit of this show, you have to understand that it was, for all intents and purposes, filmed and presented as a real live show, a sort of BBC TV-style ghost hunt, analogous to a Zach Baggins thing. But here's the catch, and it's one that most people mostly missed. There is, at the beginning of the program, uh, an opening that implies it to be a production, that is to say, a fictional show. Furthermore, throughout the program, a quote-unquote tip line phone number had been set up so viewers could call in to report their own paranormal goings on. The number was supposed to lead them to a pre-recorded message saying that this is a fictitious program and not to worry. But yeah, um, the call lines were maybe inadequate. They were not ready for the number of callers they would end up receiving, so only a few heard the disclaimer, and it's estimated that there may have been up to 30,000 calls in one night. All right, I know how all of this sounds. How could anyone believe this? How good is the show? Well, in, in my humble opinion, for 1992, the special effects look really good, and the acting of the cast is actually remarkably solid. It's a silly premise in hindsight, but for the literally traumatized audience, it was apparently perfect. No one was ready for that, and the lack of widespread internet made sure that no one could debunk this one in real time on the fly. The BBC subsequently banned the show from the airwaves. Um, I think it's only recently seen any widespread uh, show because of the BBC, but you can find it online. And I cannot stress this enough. Go give this one a watch. It's deliciously creepy and it's entertaining. It's kind of a shame, in my opinion, that the prehistory of this style is kind of the best of the batch. And that's not to say there aren't some other great modern films in this style. We'll be talking about a handful of them, obviously. But Ghostwatch really is a brilliant thing. And I can't imagine going forward with Halloween horror binges without watching this one now. The program you're about to watch is a unique live investigation of the supernatural. It contains material which some viewers may find to be disturbing. No creaking gates, no gothic towers, no shutter windows. Yet for the past 10 months, this house has been the focus of an astonishing barrage of supernatural activity.
We need to jump ahead to what might be a great entry point for the whole ghost hunting mockumentary thing. Grave Encounters. This one has maybe the most close resemblance to a modern ghost hunting TV show aesthetic and feeling. The premise is pretty simple, of course. Uh, a TV crew with dubious ghost hunting credentials shows up to an abandoned psychiatric hospital to film a ghost hunt. Naturally, they bite off way, way more than they can chew. Mark. Good evening, and welcome to another episode of Grave Encounters. Psychiatric hospitals like this were seen as sort of a, a dumping ground for embarrassing family members rather than a place that they could go to actually get help. Many of them were severely disturbed. It's truly frightening. I swear to God that I saw someone right at the end of the hall there. And he swears that, that, that something pushed him off the ladder. So you guys see this window here? Lock it up real good at night. Come back in the morning. Sometimes this thing's wide open. Tonight, my crew and I, using the most sophisticated in ghost hunting equipment, we're in search of definitive proof of spirits that were unsettled in life and possibly unsettled in the afterlife. Is there someone here with us? What the f was that? What if this is something real? Get that? TC, you remember, man? Yeah. I'm gonna document everything because when we get out of this place, people are gonna want to see this. Matt and Houston are gone. We just need to focus on finding a way out. There's something over there. Where are you? We need to break this movie into its component parts for a second to make sense of it. Aesthetically, this movie's great. Special effects range from decent to holy shit good. Uh, there's also an admirable amount of practical effects mixed in with the CG, which that's always fun. The set is genuinely atmospheric and it's creepy as hell. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to say that like the final leg of the show is shockingly bleak. It's admittedly silly. Hell, the whole movie is admittedly really silly, but it's genuinely chilling, and it's also a little sad. I, I want to make a, a quick point. Just take a second to point out Ashley Grizenko. Uh, I believe that's her last name. It's how I'm pronouncing it anyway. If I butcher that, sorry. Uh, she portrays the character Sasha in this film, and she does a really good job uh, evoking a lot of emotion out of what could have been like a really paper-thin kind of script. And now the downsides of this movie. I mean, first of all, the dialogue swings from meh to, well, those F and N slurs weren't fucking necessary. I don't think many of the main characters were designed to be really likable, so I get that it's characterization and all. But yeah, it's dated the movie pretty badly. Uh, second of all, 
The film really relies on a lot of jump scares. Now, I like a good jump scare as much as the next guy, but by the end of the movie, it gets pretty old. Uh, the atmosphere of the building could have been used to way more winning effect in that regard, I think. In a way, this movie feels a little confused. Uh, is this a silly popcorn flick horror romp thing? Uh, is it a serious meta commentary on ghost hunting shows? I don't think the writing lends towards either, really. So it's worth watching, but just be aware of how even it is in some spots. Moreover, I can't recommend the sequel at all. It's silly, and it's very much a rehash of the original. But if you're dedicated to being a completionist, well, Grave Encounters 2 is out there for you. Is there ever a movie about a documentarian or about a crew where the characters are written to be likable? Man, that's a really uh, interesting question. And I, I, I've been, I'm kind, kind of glad you brought this up because a, a complaint I've had throughout this entire series of podcasts is, you know, okay, like uh, Blair Witch is a great example. You feel for the cast because, well, they're going through hell. And then on top of that, we know how grueling the production was. We know that it was rough. And I don't think that the three characters in Blair Witch are expressly unlikable. I just think they're a little rough to get your head around. You know what I mean? Because there's so little characterization given to them. I mean, what do we know about them? They're college students. They're doing a final project of some variety. I don't know if it's like a final thesis project or what, but it's a final project of, of whatever they're doing to make this film. And these are three young people about to be cut down in the prime of their lives. Okay, sure. Uh, that's a, I think that's as good of a, a plot as you could ask for in that case. Um, I've seen some quote-unquote found footage movies that have uh, likable or interesting characters. I think uh, As Above, So Below, is, which is a favorite of mine for, the, for that type of film, I think the characters are really like... Um, are really likable in that one. I think Noroi the Curse is a classic case. It's kind of a ghost hunting mockumentary thing, sort of. Um, I find the main character, Kobayashi, I think he's awesome. I think he's a very compelling character, actually. But on the whole, I think these characters need to be either kind of blank slates for you to uh, input your own tastes or personality on top of, I don't know that they can be expressly likable. Naturally. It's the paparazzi thing, right? <laughs> the guy in charge has to be the kind of person who would just pick up a camera and follow around a celebrity. You know, we got to be there. We got to get that shot. You guys need to do what needs to happen. This is very important. People are going to be watching this for decades and talking about it. It's like, that's the personality, right? All of these found footage type films or this documentarian crew that meets their end slowly over the course of 90 minutes it's always the douchebag it has to be because there has to be someone you hate who gets their comeuppance sure um i wonder if on some level and i don't know that we really have a space to address this in any of the episodes but this is kind of an interesting question right and for the record i don't have any answers here this is a genuinely off the cup response for me is that uh, I wonder if this sort of film can be made without an express commentary on celebrity, right? So with the exceptions of maybe the first handful of found footage films, at no point is the thinking not we're following this interesting person or people 
for a reason. There's a good thing that we're do that they're doing that we're following for whatever reason. Be they uh, a TV show crew, uh, film students, documentarians, whatever. Whatever the case may be, there is an implied thing that you should want to know what this person thinks. And I think that has a lot to do with the kind of uh, modern like cult of celebrity, the way that we we have to on some level constantly be attached to the celebrities in our shows. I don't know, man. Uh, that's a that's a really interesting question and not one that I precisely have an answer for. Uh, real quick, while I've got this uh, split second between points within the script, Joe, I'm afraid we have to issue a retraction. If you insist, what did I say this time? <sighs> Joe, <laughs> in one of our previous episodes, you said that the uh, the the creators. Oh, he's he's popping open a drink. This is serious. Uh, you said in one of our previous episodes that the creators of the Blair Witch expressly said that the plot of the film was the two men in the team taking Heather, the female lead, out to the woods to kill her. And as it turns out, I wasn't able to find any incidents of that. Now, what I did find was a number of articles saying that this was a popular fan theory and one that when you like watch the movie in that light, it kind of like takes the movie in a new direction, which, okay, sure, fan theories are great. And I am a guy who believes in death of the author, broadly speaking. So you can kind of run with that theory if that's what you how you want to interpret the film. Me, I don't see any um, diegetic evidence for that within the, the plot. So we have to issue a retraction. That's not actually what the uh, the members of Hacks and Films said when they made that movie. To be clear, what they said was, yeah, that's really a cool theory. They did say that one time, but no, they didn't actually say that okay, it was so something that they did. I misunderstood. We, we are journalists uh, here at the Fright Lab, and we have to, uh, I don't know, maintain some objective standards. Accuracy is important, damn it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> clearly the, the, the bearded guys with the horror show are the ones you should be turning to for journalistic ethics, apparently. Finally, we need to bring up South Korea. Uh, they fell into the mix with Gonjiam. Haunted Asylum. And I hope I pronounced that correctly. Native Korean speakers, sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to say that now. Sorry. It's easy to draw comparisons with this one and Grave Encounters, but I genuinely think that Gonjiam Haunted Asylum is just a much better film altogether. The plot is similar enough. Uh, a ghost hunting YouTuber-esque group of ghost hunters go to the abandoned Gonjiam Asylum uh, claiming it as one of the most haunted places in the world. They infiltrate the building, put up cameras, and of course, all hell breaks loose, much like Grave Encounters. But the similarities end there, at least for me. To start, the acting is much more even. It's a much better acted film in many regards. It's a little over the top in a couple of spots acting-wise, but ultimately it's very entertaining the way they handled that. Uh, the use of technology, such as drone footage, GoPro cameras, uh, that sort of thing. It's really cleverly done. Um, the scares in this film are genuinely tense and freaky, and the movie does a lot with atmosphere and setting. Uh, moreover, there are some pretty like clever things in the dialogue of this movie. One of the characters, uh, named Charlotte, is portrayed as someone who has visited a boatload of the quote-unquote most haunted locations in the world. 
I found myself having to pause the movie and look up what she was talking about. And this is where I just, man, it gets better. I love this little detail. Uh, There is an allegedly haunted asylum in real life called Gonjiam. Um, the South Korean government actually wouldn't let the filmmakers uh, film in that building. Uh, it turns out that it's extremely dangerous because of its like rotting, decaying, all that. Uh, so it turns out there's an abandoned building in Busan where they ended up doing the filming. And why did they choose that particular building in Busan? Because both of the buildings have identical floor plans. Isn't that just a, a brilliant way to substitute a building? Uh, Gonjiam Haunted Asylum is just good fun and wholly modern to our like time period. It's a good looking movie with scares aplenty. Uh, you should add that to your watch list. Is it like the most uh, psychologically involving one? Is it the, the most thought provoking? Absolutely not. This I don't think this is a sub subgenre that does a lot of thought provoking. But Gonjiam Haunted Asylum, man. God, it's a good movie. I need to check this out. Oh, yeah, dude. Totally. If you're going to do this type of film, analog horror is your friend. Make the cameras not look great. We're going to talk about that in the next episode, my dude. In a filmmaking style that's already a love it or hate it sort of thing, I can see how these movies might not make the top of everyone's to watch lists. They're divisive, and understandably so. Me, I'm a sucker for a clever ghost story, and I like my scares to be equally funny and unsettling. But I think we can't ignore that the ghost hunting mockumentary type is something kind of important. Reality TV, for all of its ills, is here to stay, at least on some level. And ghost hunting TV is just the natural outcome here, the spectacle of a ghost hunting drama, if you will. And it's funny to me how quickly we are willing to reject what ultimately is just modern haunted house fiction because there's a camera involved. I don't know if many filmmakers could pull off a ghost watch, much less a Gonjiam haunted asylum. And in our next episode, the final of the series, we're going to dig a little further into that inquiry, but we'll leave that discussion until the next episode. Joe, I want to kind of give you the final word on this one. You've watched a lot of movies on behalf of me and this show. And are these movies the silliest of the batch? And what do you make of like the Haunted House TV show and and the mockumentary response of it? If you go back to the War of the Worlds, this is not the first time, nor is it the last time that the general populace didn't get the message. This is not a real thing happening, but because we showed up late to the party... Everyone thinks the world is actually being invaded. Everybody thinks that there actually is a haunted house that is being investigated by the BBC. And then everybody thinks there are ghost hunting shows or ghost hunting to be done. 
I'm not even going to correct that in the edit because that's just how <laughs> sloppy I said it. I don't think these are bad films. I think the entire problem that is reality TV can sum up everything I have to say about why the ghost hunting shows are not interesting. It is an interesting topic, but it does show you that thing that you learned a long time ago. People like to be scared. They like to go to the movies. They like to watch TV. A jump scare is good when you've earned it. When your entire movie is jump scares, you're just making loud noises to scare the audience. That's not clever filmmaking. It's by the book horror filmmaking. Somebody pointed out to me recently that children's films and children's television is very different today than it was in the 80s. And everybody's trying to keep from overwhelming the children or nobody wants to scare the children anymore. But kids like to be scared. And we're just big kids, right? We're horror movie nerds and heavy metal musicians that love things that are not normal. I'll say it. The opposite of sunshine. That's what we want, right? You want the scary room. You want the flashlights because everything about a documentary or a mockumentary ghost hunting thing goes out the window when you turn the lights on. Because if this was reality, you would not be sitting in an abandoned asylum trying to film a ghost. You would be turning the lights on, walking around, cleaning it up and repurposing it, right? So this, there, there's no reality here. It's 100% entertainment filmmaking and it's about tension. Like all good horror movies, it's about tension and release. You know, uh, Philip K. Dick once said that something to the effect that uh, reality is what keeps happening after you stop believing in it. Uh, he cracked the joke uh, of that in one of his books that he stopped paying his electric bill one day because he decided it didn't matter. And then the electric company came and shut off his power and he decided, oh, no, that's actually quite real. Um, whether or not ghosts are real, uh, again, I'm, I'm ambivalent to the subject. I'm not entirely sure I, I'm really all that worried about it. It's a, it's a deeper conversation. At least sure. it's a more complex conversation to ask the question like you did, are ghosts real? And then cite statistics that break it down to say <laughs> ghosts, demons. Well, as soon as you make that single <laughs> caveat, we have an entirely different conversation to well, have, my friend. Well, and, and there it is right there, right? One, one man's benevolent ghost is another man's demon. And as I heard someone say once, a god ignored is a demon born. It's this curious sort of push-pull dynamic that we have as people. We want to be scared. You know, I cracked uh, the comment so many times early in this series why we call the Fright Lab the Fright Lab. Because horror is a great way to experiment and play with really unacceptable, really scary stuff in a safe environment. We go to the theater or we turn on our TV, we pull up our streaming app or whatever. We turn off the lights, we watch the movie. And either we laugh because it's funny or it's bad or it scares the crap out of us because it's well-made and it's entertaining. But then we turn on the lights we go get a drink of water and we go to bed. It's fine. We we know that it's safe here to do this. And I like that. I think that uh, some ghost hunting programs and ghost hunting movies succeed when they make it stop feeling so safe, right? Sure, the horror is on the other end of the recording. It's probably not going to hurt you is what I'm saying. But 
If that feeling lingers for just a minute after the film ends, when you shut off the film, you go, wow, that was really good. And then you shudder just a little. It gives you a little little twitch. Then I think it. Then I think it's work. You know, if it makes you look at the darkened bathroom at the end of the hall and go, "Oh hell," <laughs> which I am not above admitting, it's happened to all of us at some point in our horror-going lives. Or the first time you saw The Ring and then said, "That was really pretty good film," and then you laid in bed for a second and realized the TV was right there. Or you do what happened to me is you go and see it in the theater with a friend of yours. What's up, Amanda? We went to the theater. We watched the movie. They knew roughly when I was going to get home. And then they called me when I got home because the phone ringing after watching The Ring was the scariest, <laughs> scariest sound you can imagine. <laughs> it was very clever in that regard. Very clever in that regard. Thanks, Amanda, for that. I appreciate it. So uh, with that, what do you think? Have we beaten this subject to death? Are we on the right track? Do ghosts exist? Or have you ever been on a ghost hunt? If you have, we want to know more. Email us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at fright underscore lab underscore pod. We're on the Letterboxd app under Fright Lab Pod. Joe, would you kindly let our audience know where they can hear more of what you're working on? If you enjoy all things heavy metal, you need to check out all of the podcasts we are creating at DiscussMetal.com. We talk about your favorite bands, my favorite bands. We talk about heavy metal topics. But what I need everyone to do today is take out your phone, wherever you found or you listen to the Fright Lab. And I need you to swipe left, swipe right, swipe up, whatever's necessary. They're all different. No one can agree on how it should be laid out. Find that thumbs up. Find that five star. Hit that. Leave us a review. Tell us what you think about the show we want to hear from you you heard lucas say it the fright lab podcast at gmail.com i want you to tell your friends but what i really want you to do is bring them to the party we're getting close to doing some live things community-based things and we want to keep the conversation going because this isn't just a four-part symposium about horror cinema verite that Lucas will eventually have to add additional parts to as he comes up with more <laughs> reasons to talk about it. This is something that we love and we enjoy. We like to be scared. So send us your comments. See if you can scare us. We want to hear from you. And as always, The Fright Lab is written and researched by me, Lucas Yoakum. Mr. Joseph Wren is our co-host and fearless producer. We appreciate every single listener, and we will talk to you very soon. Grave Encounters or Session 9? Session 9. I mean, hands down, Session 9 is the better film. I hate that movie. You hate Session 9? It, it goes on too long. Okay, you are right. It could be cut by about six minutes. You could cut about six minutes out of the film and it works way better. You could cut more than that. There's a uh, lot of time spent just in these rooms that nothing actually happens and then Gordon starts loosing it. <laughs> Do it, Gordon. Legit one of the scariest things I ever heard. In, in a film. <laughs> Spoilers, everybody. <laughs> Do it, Gordon. Do it now. Now.